was a long ago winter's day when me and my best friend, Greg the Joy King George, ripped off Sam Blade Records in downtown Wheeling, West Virginia. Back at the Joy King, safe and dry, we listened all day to that stolen stash. We dedicate this music to you, Joy King. Just starting your latest five to ten in Lompoc, because the best way out of winter is through it. Like Carl Jung says, embrace your grief, for there your soul will grow. You're tuned in to K-Bear in Sicily, Alaska. This is Chris in the Morning, and today we have the blues. That was Chris in the Morning, and this is season two of Northern Overexposure Podcast. My name is Lee, and I'm always joined by my good friend Charles. Yeah, uh, this is season two. Here we are. We're in and, it. And uh, still, this is still your first time watching it, right? I've seen the show a lot. Charles is watching it for the first time. You've made it to season two. Yeah, this is season two, and we are here to overanalyze every single episode of Northern Exposure, the 1990s CBS television series. That's right. We like to overanalyze uh, this show, <laughs> maybe a little too much, but another uh, tenant of our, of our podcast here is we always like to try to introduce it to another person. Like if someone has never seen the show before, we typically will have them on uh, at the end of an episode to kind of give their... Their intake. Intake. Um, that's how we did it in season one. This is season two. So now we have, uh, we have a guest host today. Um, yeah, we have guess, some new tricks up our sleeves. Yeah, maybe we should just introduce... Our guest host is Mason. Mason, are you there? Hi there. Yes, I'm here. Mason uh, has seen the show before. In fact, he's probably seen it. Uh, what were you saying? When did you start wa- watching the show? Well, you got me into the show back in high school. I fell in love with it instantly and, of course, binged it and watching it that way. Um, it was a sort of a blur. And uh, since then, I've I've watched it a few more times and been through the, the whole series of I'd say three or four times, and uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, it gets better with every watch. Absolutely. It's one of my favorites. Yeah, obviously one of our favorite shows. Would you say, uh, we were kind of talking about this, like uh, trying to, int- have you tried introducing the show to, to other people? How does it go? Oh, tried. Yeah, I tried. <laughs> <laughs> it's not, it doesn't take I, very I have, not, I have not succeeded yet. I have, I have not succeeded yet, I'll say. Have you not, have you not found poor. one person uh, that's like picked up and watched the, watched the whole series? I've gotten my wife into okay. probably the middle of season three. Okay. And, yeah, uh, that's good. And, that's but good actually, stuff. at that time, she will finish it. It's just that we got distracted and we started getting into Gilmore Girls, which I know is one of Charles's <laughs> favorite shows, right? Oh yeah, yeah, wonderful show. Yeah. So, so we good. we we just sidetracked and then we haven't gotten back to it. But I'll 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 get her there. She likes it. Yeah. It's like I said. It's one of those shows that um, you know maybe doesn't take uh, to to new watchers, but that's why we're, we're trying every every single episode. You know, and I think mostly our, our guests who have, who have watched the show only once, you know, for the, for the first time, uh, seem to really like it. Um, I think we talked about this, Charles, how like we were worried that our guests maybe are just kind of trying to be nice to us. But no, I honestly do think they, they like the show. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're always dropping them off into like a random episode with no context. But every single time in their commentary, they always say, oh, yeah, I'd, I'd watch the show. Like I'd give it a try, so it seems like it's we're succeeding on that front of trying to convert people. Yeah, haven't gotten any hard nose yet, and 
And I mean, you made it to season two, so. I, I am waiting for that <laughs> note, though. I am waiting for that commentary in which he says, like, this is a terrible television yeah. show. Yeah, and I want you to, like, I mean, you've already kind of done it. We were talking, We are, I mean, we were out of season one, but I guess we were talking about uh, Sex, Lies, and Ed's tape being Oh, yeah, we're not of, talking about that episode again. <laughs> We've right. already dedicated a whole episode to that one. Let's we're hop no longer in. talking Let's about that. Let's hop into season two. <laughs> so, right off the bat, um, you wanted snow, we got snow. There's northern exposure, finally lots of snow. The very first shot of this. Is this the first? Yeah, well, so in season, or sorry, in episode seven, we see at the end of an episode, um, there's some snow. But now here on season two, episode one, I guess canonically this is episode nine, but we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't list it like that. That's just confusing. That's confusing. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. But uh, so this is the first time that uh, we see Sicily like in the wintertime, because I think Previously, it's just been the summer. It's kind of like a nondescript season, but it's definitely not winter. But as we open this episode, a vast landscape of snow. There's like, I think even a a stock footage shot of a moose. Uh, I think it's a moose. It doesn't have any horns, but um, yeah. And we get this Chris in the morning uh, opening monologue. He's in the studio. He's um, apparently his house has been his trailer yeah his His trailer trailer got crushed by a cypress tree do they even have cypress trees in alaska i didn't know yeah it looks like different variety so the show is shot in roslyn washington but uh there's some like nature shots and they seem to be like a lot of pine Hmm. at least in roslyn washington well yeah that's the land of conifers there i mean uh yeah so i would imagine there's probably some variety of cypress you think there's you think cypress can grow up there or I'm sure. I'm sure there's some. I'd have to look look into it a little. <laughs> well, the right one fell onto Chris's trailer. So he's in the studio. He's kind of living there now. And uh, he's got some pretty interesting breakfast pajamas. I don't know if you guys saw that. His I didn't pajamas have, have like eggs and like uh, pancakes and stuff on it. <laughs> I didn't catch that. And he's he's a little maybe a little too expository in this opening monologue, but it doesn't bother me that much. You know, we're getting into season two so got to catch the audience up i i like his i like his monologue i think it does a good job of of uh you know succinctly giving giving viewers an idea of what's happening in this show if they've never if they're just coming to it for the first time yeah i mean he he packs he packs a lot of information into that into that little segment yeah like he sets up the snow that we're finally getting snow. He sets up uh, Joel. He's like, we've had our doctor here. Right. I, I think it's not explicitly stated until maybe the end of the episode, but apparently Joel has been in Sicily for eight months. This marks eight months. Yeah, around eight months. And I agree with you, Mason. I think that it's a great way to set up the premise of the episode, the beginning of it, without having to resort to a voiceover. Like there's a real reason behind why we're being introduced to disinformation. And I really enjoy it. Because it's like a radio broadcast. Yeah. And I I like the introduction of winter into here because it's showing like it's season two. It's a whole new adventure. And I've just been a big fan of when television shows go into that. Not a lot of them do. But immediately right off the bat, we can see that they're obviously entrenched in the snow and it's going to be impacting their lives throughout yeah, the episode. Yeah, it's like same old show, but with a new twist. Now it's like actually winter. Everything is frozen. Uh, Joel is banging on his radiator. Mm. Is he in his office or at home? He's in his office. And I just like the, or actually I, dis, I dislike the sound effect they use for the pipe. 
banging. <laughs> it's just like sounds like a Nintendo sixty four like Goldeneye, like a video game. Just like, <laughs> dah, dah, dah. <laughs> but um, yeah, let's. Uh, what do you? What do you guys? Uh, what are some of your favorites? Um, what are some things you notice? I guess so, Mason. You've seen the show countless times, but unlike us, we've been watching every episode uh, leading up to this. Um, so you haven't jumped back into this show for a minute. This is kind of your your hop back into Northern Exposure. This it's episode. been a while. Yeah, it's been a while because yeah, as we were as we were discussing earlier, my uh, my DVDs are currently. <laughs> on loan yeah which they're on loan and, to, and they're not being yeah. watched which is you know it's oh, sad no. but it's it's okay well the options there hopefully the person who has the dvds if they're listening to this now you know i don't know who they are maybe you know who could it be but uh hopefully they'll listen to the hopefully they'll watch the show because they have the get DVDs the hint now. yeah but uh no i was gonna try to say like charles maybe did you notice any what do you notice different about this season, I mean, apart from the the winter, obviously the snow. Any other things you're that you notice differently? Um, like we're we're starting a new season. Yeah. Well, um, the whole episode as a whole. Last like season finale, you were talking about Joshua Brand, um, mm-hmm. the and the showrunners, how yeah. they wanted to um, kind of shift more into quote unquote weirdness, or at least a little bit more into stranger territories, where they could experiment with the format of the television uh, series as a whole and you can feel it throughout this entire episode because there's a lot of cutaways there's a lot of segments that are like little vignettes right yeah exactly like vignettes that i really enjoy i love it i think they should go more toward that direction and it seems like like leaving reality for a moment yeah exactly almost like a dream sequence of sorts Mm -hmm. but we as an audience member understand what's actually happening. We know they're not actually in those places. And I, I, I am a giant fan of it, man. I, yeah. I think they're doing themselves a favor by going into that. So th- I think that was the big major thing that I noticed as a change in this episode. But uh, w- what about you? Have you noticed anything different? Yeah. Like, so we get, like you said, we got, we get some like new treats here and there. And we also get some of like uh, some of our favorite stuff, like recurring um, I noticed uh, Maggie seems to be wearing more makeup in this season. Interesting. Is that just me? She is. No, yeah. no, no. I think you're right. Little, she looks, you know, I mean, Mason can attest like this looks like Maggie. And actually like we, our, our introduction to Joel and Maggie in this episode is they're bickering and they're quarreling. So like, mm-hmm. you know, it stays true to form. Um, so check mark there. What's the, what would you say are the different plot lines in this episode? Obviously, um, uh, I think one of the, uh, the plot A as they would call it, uh, is definitely Joel trying to handle his breakup with Elaine mm-hmm. and trying to cope with failure. Elaine I has that, broken up with Joel. That's I guess that happens pretty early on. Got the Dear John letter in the mail. Yes, <laughs> I love uh, I love Dear John letters. <laughs> uh, I don't I, I don't mean like I love receiving them. I mean like <laughs> the concept, <laughs> the idea. But I love that war segment that they go into about him in the trenches trying to handle all of the... Oh. Yeah, so the way the way it's set I up is uh, he is going... I guess Marilyn gives him his mail and he's looking through these letters and he gets one from Elaine and as soon as he starts reading, it all starts going south. She, you know, as we said, she breaks up with him through a letter. Um, she's She's left him for... 
what did she say? Like a, a retired judge, judge or something? He was a retired yeah, judge that he they a judge in Louisville. Yeah, from from Kentucky. And she's moving back to Kentucky mm-hmm. with him. Wow. Uh, and as he's reading this, he sinks and he's actually transported into this like black and white World War One trench warfare. He's like reading the letter in his uh, you know, soldier uniform, and there's like grenades going off. And uh, what is the last line of the letter is um, P.S. Don't get frostbite or something like that. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) It's pretty cold hearted. Mm -hmm. I don't. We've only been introduced to Elaine once, like in person. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I liked her character from what I saw. But this, I mean, it's such a terrible way to break up with someone that they've been together for what 12 years they mentioned 12 years were they engaged chris mentioned they engaged they were engaged yeah and now she's did she mention is she getting engaged to this this uh retired judge now she's with him now so yeah but yeah i don't know if they're getting engaged but they're definitely with them and i just think it's such a crappy thing to do though end a 12-year relationship through a a letter letter. thousands of miles apart oh my heart for him Give the, give the man a phone call at least. I know. <laughs> yeah, because she has called him before. Um, I was going to say, did you did you recognize that the voice actress here that's reading from the letter is not Elaine's voice or not? It's it's another actress again. It's yeah, it's definitely another actress. I can definitely tell. The actress has changed a couple of times, right? Yeah. So we were mm-hmm. talking about this, like in the in the first season, we do get to see Elaine in episode five, but any other time she's referenced, it's always like a different voice actress. It's never the same actor. And what's funny is I did I did look into this. Uh, spoiler alert: Elaine does come back, she comes and it's back. the same actress. Um, so, but for whatever reason, she didn't want to come back for this uh, this dear Joel letter. I guess. <laughs> I, I guess just to that point, we can jump around a little bit, but um, mm-hmm. so you were mentioning how, Charles, you were mentioning how you liked all of the uh, the little vignettes and the little um, moments where we leave reality. Uh, there's another moment when um, Joel has this fantasy. Uh, it's another sort of um, black and white type. Are you talking about the silent film? Yeah. Do you want to set that up for us? He's, I, I see, I kind of thought of this as more of a, a dream uh, because mm-hmm. the next scene mm-hmm is Joel waking up to Ed in his room, of course, which is, that becomes a common occurrence. Ed is always show, which I just love. In, despite the amount yeah, of locks he, that Joel has on his door, Ed can always enter. Yeah. Ed finds a way in. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so he, it's, um, it's the classic, you know, Elaine is in the chapel and she's, uh, you know, she's, she's getting married to this old judge from Kentucky and, and, and Joel is at the window banging and, course it's a silent film so it's interspersed with the just the text elaine and exclamation point written and uh mm-hmm. i don't know that's that's it but there but what i love about it is the the the, the actor playing the the judge he's got the yeah. the, the perviest smile <laughs> as he turns and looks at joel super old essentially just looks just like looks, this pervy yeah. uh colonel sanders character yeah. uh oh, it's also great. if you I didn't. I was kind of looking out for it because I noticed um, Elaine's voice being different earlier in the episode. Uh, if you look closely, you don't see the bride's face. Uh, we know it's Elaine, right? She doesn't show a her veil face. on, so it's obviously for whatever reason they couldn't get the same actress. Um, maybe she didn't agree, or I, I don't know. Maybe maybe she was um, booked on something else at the time. Who knows? Yeah. 
I I love that sequence, that silent film um, vignette. And I actually think that it's really important to have that scene, even though it's only like a minute long. And the reason why is because uh, right before that scene happens, there was also another vignette moment where Joel is arguing with his younger self. And I want to talk about that more in depth later. But in essence, that whole scene was trying to tell him that Joel can't just use his words anymore. So when you go into the silent film wow. vignette, yeah. he so can't talk anymore, even though he sees the words. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he he can no longer just use his words because when he does, it doesn't work. Yeah. That mu- the mustache twirling, <laughs> terrible of a, a villain just turns back and smirks at him. So that's I think that's a subtext for Joel having to use actions instead of words. And I really like that that they were able to share that. Also on top of that, uh, the way that Joel gets to the church that he's banging on in this uh, sort of like fantasy sequence, uh, he's he drives up on like a dog sled. So it's almost as if like he, right. Alaska being far <laughs> removed from, because uh, he's outside banging on the door to get in. He's Alaska on the outside and they're New York on the inside and this gap ah. has, has left him mute, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, I didn't catch that one. That, that detail, wow. nice. That's pretty cool. Uh, do you want to, should we just talk about the, uh, oh, no, I, I wanted to, I did want to say, uh, just because we haven't stated it out loud, but that's, I guess it's referencing uh, that that scene of him running to the church is sort of referencing uh, The Graduate, which Ed brings up, I think, earlier in the episode. He's like, you know, like the ending of The Graduate, you can right. bang, you know, you can break up the marriage. Mm-hmm. I think that's actually really interesting that you bring that up because The Graduate's main uh, I guess punchline is the right word, even though it's not a joke, but the main takeaway in The Graduate is the last 30 seconds of it, I guess, the last minute when they're on the bus mm-hmm. and they're kind of being tentative about their relationship. And later on in the episode, Ed talks about trying to get closure in the last 15 minutes. Yeah. So if you think about it, if you watched Graduate and you didn't watch the last 15 minutes of The Graduate, you would to- you would get a totally different view of it. Yeah, I think that's a really poignant uh, movie to use yeah, for this episode. Yeah, I think Joel uses a a, a reference. Uh, he's trying to explain to Ed like why he feels so depressed. This entire episode, Joel is incredibly depressed, um, and he's trying to explain that to Ed. He 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 gives the example of watching the movie Wages of Fear which I haven't seen, but I know it's been uh, remade a couple times um, by different directors. I really should check this out. It sounds pretty awesome. But he references Wages of Fear. Imagine like the last 15 minutes of the movie, like right as they're about to light up like the dynamite or something, it's like it cuts off and you don't get to watch the the resolution. So yeah, I just I thought we should fit that in there. Yeah. Really quick, interesting, interesting little coincidence here. Um, Elaine was the name of the love interest character in the graduate. In the graduate yeah, well. I guess that's why. Um, oh, yeah. you're right. Ed was yeah. so ecstatic to to quote it. You know, it's like it's perfect. <laughs> I've seen this in the movies. It'll work. Um, oh yeah. So back to the dear John letter. Um, we're going to backtrack a little bit, but as soon as Joel gets this letter, he's actually in the midst of um, seeing Maggie as a patient. Uh, she has a UTI. That's sort of a recurring. Uh, joke and a plot, I guess, in this episode. And she's given him a urine sample. And as soon as he reads the letter, he just like, what is he? Like, he's like, walks out. He's like, I have to leave. I can't, I can't see you. I have to leave. Walks out of the office, hops in his truck. I think he like hands his urine, the 
Maggie's urine sample to just a random extra walking down the street. <laughs> a random person on the street. <laughs> yeah. Um, but as Joel pulls away in the very same shot, the camera cranes up in the very same shot, uh, a- another truck pulls in and it's carrying uh, this giant satellite dish, which is our, I guess you would say maybe our B plot is, um, yeah. What can we say about that? Uh, I really like if, if for nothing else that in that entire plot line, they kept referencing the almost marriage. Oh yeah. Line that happened in uh, episode three. I want to say yeah, uh, four dream schemes, four episode yeah. four. Yeah. And I was really worried they were going to dump away from that and never bring it up again. Like they do in a lot of sitcom television shows, oh, yeah. but I'm glad they kept referencing it throughout this, um, this episode. So that was at least the one key takeaway that I liked about it. Mm-hmm. But uh, what about you, Mason? What did you think about this plot line? I found it, you know, it just shows, you know, this is one of Shelly's, one of Shelly's weaknesses, you know, she's, well, you find out later, you know, she's got, like, there's a, there's a family history of, um, you know, tendency towards addiction, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And escapism. And I, I found, I found it pretty, pretty funny. Uh, often, you know, Shelly would be caught watching things in, um, in other languages. She obviously doesn't speak. Just look at that. Here we are in Sicily, Alaska, clean across the great Pacific Ocean, watching an Italian documentary on Chinese food shoppers in action. And, uh, at one point, what it was what looked like a, an American film with like Japanese overdubs or something. Yeah. And she just can't, she can't help herself. <laughs> She's still She's watching it. Watching anything can. and everything. <laughs> yeah. I think she was watching, um, yeah. what is it? They, they, they mention it. Oh, PI Magnum. PI Magnum. Maybe it's like Magnum. She's watching Magnum. Yeah. But that's not the Japanese. I don't think that's the Japanese show though. No. PI Magnum is the, no, it, it, yeah. it is, it is like Magnum, but that's it what I'm has saying. It's just, it was overdubbed. overdubs on it. Oh, it's an American <laughs> show that she's watching. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but no, yeah, Pretty this funny. huge satellite dish, I guess can, um, can reach all these, uh, foreign channels. And that seems to be a lot of what happens like people are gathering at the brick watching tv and oftentimes it is these weird like telenovelas and and one time it's like an italian documentary soap operas yeah yeah, yeah. though there is i like it oh go ahead oh go on oh i was gonna oh okay no, 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 talk about it i love it <laughs> <laughs> uh just really quickly we can almost just have this as the sound bite oh, okay but i like what ed says uh he says it's fun to watch tv with a bunch of people around and I think that's really true. And that's what they're yeah. just doing at the break. It's just a whole community of people. Rugby. You uh, follow rugby, do you? Oh, no. But it's kind of fun to watch anything when there's a bunch of people around. Uh-huh. Yeah, there's partly like sort of this cursory feeling where like Maurice is, um, he feels a little bit like he's lost a little bit of his grip on Chris and Ed because of the satellite dish. Like it feels like Maurice is uh, competing with, yeah. with hauling because I guess like Maurice is the rich person. He's supposed to have all the, the greatest technology anyway. Yeah. Like Maurice um, offers to uh, offers uh, for Ed to come over to watch an unmarried woman, which is again, another film I haven't seen. I got to start making a list. Cause these are, these all sound really good, but um, Ed turns them down and uh, yeah, he says that line that you just said, Charles. He's like, yeah, the, you know, I don't really, we're going to watch a rugby game. I'm not really a fan, but it's just kind of fun to watch anything as long as there's like a bunch of people there. It's always fun. You feel pretty, feel pretty bad for Maurice in that scene. It's yeah, pretty sad. Because like he's, Chris he's blows him off. He was stood Ed. up by Chris before. Yeah. Yeah. And he's, uh, I mean, he just tried to adopt Chris. Yeah. <laughs> 
couple <laughs> months ago. So now he's uh, trying to reel from that as well. Yeah, I don't know if I like you were saying how they um you like how they brought back the um the sort of like show bible that uh Holling and, and Shelley almost got married. Um mm-hmm. I don't think they're ever going to bring back the uh, the time when Maurice adopted Chris that one time. It's like such a weird, uh, I don't know if you've gotten that far Mason in, in our podcast, but I think it's safe to say we, we think that the show kind of jumped the shark in that episode. Okay. I don't know. Super zanny. I don't know if you remember the, the episode where Chris gets adult adopted. I vague, <laughs> vaguely. Yeah. Very vaguely. I'll have to, I'll definitely have to revisit that one. Chris, yeah. Chris like becomes Maurice's son for like 20 minutes. That's not even the full episode. Like he cuts it off. Yeah. That's basically it. Oh, wow. Oh, um, I, I wanted to bring this up. Has there always been a popcorn machine in Hollings bar or is that, is that something to introduce because of the television? That's a good, you know, there, there are little things like that in these uh, sets that we're returning to, for instance, Hollings Bar, The Brick. Um, what else is in there? I, I don't know about the popcorn machine, but I feel like they're adding more and more um, this season. I also feel like maybe they have like a bigger budget this season. That's true. Yeah. I feel like I always remember the popcorn machine there. Oh, okay. There's definitely a lot of stuff in the bar that's been there. Like I remember seeing a spaghetti feed sign. That's in this episode, and that, that's been in the first season, too. Just these little trinkets that are always in the brick. I will say, um, I don't know how I didn't really notice this already, but there's a scene in, um, in Joel's cabin where I think it's, I mean, it's pretty clear to me after watching that scene that Joel's cabin is a set. It's not an actual cabin. I think it's a set, right? Yeah, it's a... Like a film yeah, set. Yeah, it's a set. You thought it was an actual cabin? Yeah, I always thought, because I think in the first season, since it's not winter, we're only at his cabin, you know, well, I guess we're there in the morning once, but we're usually at night, so we don't see out his windows. And it almost felt like um, the window drapings in this episode, when you can see out the window, it's a lot of snow. And I think at one point, like some trees kind of move in the window. It either felt like a fake background or maybe like a projection, but hard to say with the DVD quality, really what it is, but for whatever reason, yeah, I was like, it snapped. It finally clicked. I was like, this is, this oh, the looks like a set. Yeah. <laughs> really quickly about that scene, uh, Ed visits Joel, who is just beginning to try to figure out how to cope with this, uh, breakup. Joel is cleaning his oven and, um, Ed is asking like, what are you doing? You, you never cook. Like, why are you cleaning your oven? Uh, but that's not true because Joel cooks Ed breakfast in, I believe it's in oh, Sex yeah. Lies and Ed's tape. They have breakfast together in his cabin. Yeah. And they talk about Woody Allen's filmography. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The little Woody, yeah. Woody Allen fan fan club. All right. Where are we? Man? Uh, oh, I was, we're kind of jumping around, but um, mm-hmm. here's a fun game maybe uh, to play. So there is, um, while Shelly does watch a lot of foreign programming, she does watch The Wheel of Fortune. She like dresses up in the Vanna White uh, dress and all that. And uh, we do get to see uh, some on-screen uh, Wheel of Fortune. I don't know if you were paying attention, but there is uh, a puzzle on screen for a brief moment of time. Did you notice that? Like, could you guess? I can give you the, I don't know if you saw it. I was actually trying to rack my brain on it. Like what? I saw it, but you were, you were like, honestly, I, I was not bothered to solve it. I, I saw it. I was like, eh, whatever. Yeah. I didn't have enough context clues to solve it. Did, did you actually solve it? Like, um, uh, I think I did not. 
I mean, with the help of the internet. Okay, let me just set it up. Uh, so the the category is thing, and um, the puzzle is uh, two words. First word S blank 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 S T blank blank blank. Second word blank 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 blank. And now, listeners at home, if you want to try to solve it, go ahead and like pause it right now because we'll ju- we're just going to start getting into spoiler territory here. Um, but, uh, so I did use, uh, an internet sort of like online thing to help solve it. And I typed in the first word with the S and the T and all those blanks and a lot of things came up. Um, but I think I solved it. Uh, the, the, the answer would be slapstick humor is, is, uh, the thing. What? Yeah. I don't know. Oh, that is so cool. That's such a cool answer actually. Hmm. Um, yeah, maybe I, maybe I like took, <laughs> maybe I went a little too far that time. <laughs> I was pretty excited <laughs> about it, but no one, everyone else probably just like didn't, didn't really see that part. Uh, I just didn't want to delve into the top <laughs> to like look into it. Yeah. I think that there's usually three plot lines that okay. go in an episode and mm-hmm. a standard episode of Northern Exposure, but from what I can see, there's Those only the, the main Joel one and then uh, Shelly in the television. I don't think that there's another plot line for them to go into, though, because they were restricted to just two plot lines, they can put a lot of meat into Joel's plot line. And yeah. I really enjoy that. I think mm. that his is showing a lot of growth for th- in this episode. For the record, uh, I definitely agree. I think there's only really two plot lines. If you had to stretch it to a third, it could be... Um, Maggie's UTI, maybe. Oh yeah, maybe. But yeah. that's not. I mean, that's as much of a plot line as Maurice's uh, jealousy is a is a plot line. His plot line kind of fits into the Shelley plot line, and Maggie's UTI kind of fits into the Joel plot line. So yeah, really, I would say probably only two in this episode. So we see that in. Uh, do you mind if I just go for it? Do it. Yeah. So we see that Joel is just trying to. I guess also doing what Shelly is doing, trying to escape from what just got served to him. He's just trying to not be dejected that Elaine has broken up with him. So he starts going to Chris and seeing if he has any available dates for him to hook up with. This is an interesting episode for Joel. He gets to play a lot of different types. Like he, it's really funny when he's uh, sort of like mega depressed and down on his luck. There's a scene where he has an argument with Maggie, but really it's just Maggie yelling at him and he's taking it. You know, it's the first time that we've ever seen that sort of dynamic. <laughs> and and then mm. similarly, what, you, what mm. you're, what you're bringing up, Charles, the whole, uh, the Joel trying to date Chris's friends. Um, he, he plays a really slimy kind of like annoying, very forward. Uh, at least in my opinion, he's kind of, kind of like a braggart, yeah. you know? It's really yeah. funny though. Mm-hmm. Like he's trying way too hard. He's trying too hard. I know. I think it's such a, I think he references Chris's uh, dates or the women that he, Joel's trying to be with as seven sisters. Yeah. What is that? Which, what is that right. reference? That's I, I so I did a little research on it. I don't know. I'm sure you did too, Charles, but it's uh, it's like a um, seven uh, prestigious women's colleges, oh. uh, which I think five, five of which are still, um, exclusively female, um, female. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, that's exactly see. it. Yeah. Cause the, Chris mentions, uh, he's dating someone 
from the Swartworth. Swart, Swart, Swarthmore. 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 Yeah, but that's not one uh-huh. of the. Uh, oh, that's not one. But of I them. guess that's what cues up Joel to say. Um, well, do you have any seven sisters? No, it comes beforehand. Oh. He says, "Do you have any seven sisters?" And because of that, that's why uh, Chris oh. references that she went to Swarthmore. Okay. Yeah. He's like, one of the uh, <laughs> one of the colleges that he referenced actually is no longer um, a school anymore. It's Radcliffe. Oh wow! It's it's yeah. It just Radcliffe, got yeah. It got merged into Harvard in mm. 1999. So it's mm-hmm. no longer a college, which just shows how dated this uh, <laughs> this, this television series is. What do you think about the colored schools joke? Was that? Oh, I didn't really get yeah. it. Like, is that what I think? I thought he's of them saying? colored schools. Yeah, I thought this episode was about to turn a really <laughs> um, terrible corner, but they Am redeemed it because they said they saved yeah, it. Yeah, they saved, they saved it. it. It's brown. Brown. Uh, Mason, do you want to set it up? What does he say? Uh, he he says, "Oh yeah, um, she's she's got one of one of her, fr- um, you know, meeting having dinner with uh, her and one of her friends tonight. Um, she's from one of those colored schools." And Joel's like, "Colored schools." And Joel has got this look on his face, like, "What are you talking about?" <laughs> but she goes to Brown, I guess, which is a another prestigious. She goes is that Brown, one of the yeah. seven sister colleges? Or no, no, uh, it's, not. it's Ivy League. Okay. I love how I love how this scene starts. By the way, just really, really quickly, I love how the scene starts because Joel comes in, and he's he says something like, "So, Chris, how are things going with the ladies?" And Chris turns around. And he's like, "Oh yeah, I heard about your, uh, I heard about Elaine." You know. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, that is great. This whole episode, it's actually pretty well orchestrated. The way that everyone in town, it's like it happens multiple times where. Uh, a random extra will pass in front of Joel or pass next to Joel in a shot and say, oh, hey, Dr. Fleischman, sorry about your girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sorry your girlfriend dumped you. Yeah. Sorry you broke up with your girlfriend. I also like, yeah, there's also a great one when Joel's at the movie theater and the movie stops and uh, the projectionist is like, all right, Dr. Fleischman, we're not showing anything until tomorrow. You can leave now. Sorry I, about your girlfriend. <laughs> what, yeah. I wanted to say something about that particular scene that I noticed. Um, and maybe you yeah. can shed some light Let's on this. Lee. Um, it was just, it's just a little, a little thing. Like I noticed that, um, and this, I noticed that this happens a lot in the show where, um, the woman, she's walking away from Joel and you would think that with how far away from him she was, her voice should be a lot lower, but it sounds as if she's like right next to him. Maybe it's something with this, the, you know, the, yeah. I don't know. I just, they, they, that happens. I've noticed it happens a lot. Something just uh, incongruous about the, about the sound. Well, it's recorded. I, I don't, I wouldn't say I'm like an expert, but uh, I will say there are, there are little things like that, like the way movies and sound effects and I guess voices were mixed um, in the past um, are mixed a lot differently now. For instance, right. uh, with the advent of like stereo, that's, that's been around for a long time, but before then everything was just like mono stereo kind of gives you that spatial feeling. And then now like everyone has 5.1, you know, mm-hmm. Dolby surrounds, you know, surround sound, even in their, their home. So oftentimes even TV shows like movies, of course, but even TV shows, um, if someone is, for instance, in this scene, uh, behind Dr. Fleischman, uh, that sound would come from behind you, like a speaker behind your head. So things like that can, can shape, the volume and the distance and like the spatial feeling like it's definitely evolved since 1991 when this show has come out. Um, also this is a little different sort of on topic. Just my biggest pet peeve is, uh, 
in the movies and TV now, anytime someone takes a drag of a cigarette, you hear the embers burning. Um, and I don't know, I, I don't, I don't smoke. Um, I'm, I guess if I got close enough to a smoker, maybe I could hear it. Maybe it actually does make a, I'm sure if you are the smoker, maybe you actually get to that sensation, that sound of, uh, the cigarette burning. But in movies before, you know, 10 years ago, you would never hear someone, maybe you hear them light the cigarette, mm-hmm. but if they're smoking, you never hear that, that ember burning. It's just a pet, mm-hmm. pet peeve of mine. But yeah, that's an interesting thing to bring up though, Mason, like the way sound, you know, in that scene, it seems a little off, but I think it's just evolved with right. um, sort of like home theaters and stuff. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Let's talk about that scene. Yeah, Charles, you're saying that you wanted to get to uh, this um, movie theater experience with Joel. Oh, yeah. The entire sequence is my favorite part of the episode. And honestly, it's probably been, this is, you know, one of my most favorite things I've seen from Northern Exposure so far. Yeah. It's incredibly creative and it's showing a lot of, not exposition, that's not the word I want to use. Um, but just like character background. Character right? development. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. That's the word, um, isn't uh, Character development within Joel. So to start off the scene, Joel is just left uh, in the movie theater alone and then suddenly the projector turns on and there is a woman that we've never been introduced to and she is Terry Gold, apparently one of Joel's early girlfriends mm. back in teenage years. Yeah, he's like, Joel's like attacked by his past girlfriend who's just calling him out. And we learned that Joel, I guess in high school or in his past. He was a player. Um, he was a player. He's a <laughs> philanderer. He, he, mm-hmm. they, they called him the juggler because he would juggle girls. And uh, essentially in this moment, uh, Tori, his past girlfriend, who's yelling at him or, you know, accusing him, um, she gets to um, flaunt her life. Like her life is amazing. She lives in what, like Norway or something? Uh, uh, Sweden, I believe Sweden, is what she says. In like a mansion. And Joel is, um, you know, suffering in Alaska. Yeah, living in a dinky cabin. <laughs> yeah, which isn't a real cabin. It's just a set. <laughs> That's true. That's yeah. true. <laughs> uh, no, yeah. So So stop me if I'm skipping anything, but the next... The next uh, part of this scene is, uh, you know, that ends and uh, a young version of Joel comes on screen. Mm-hmm. And he's and he is very con- confrontational. Yeah. He's, <laughs> like, he's really yeah. letting him have it. Yeah, it's like counting with, like moving his hands a lot. Charles, you were saying in Aurora Borealis how you like it when uh, characters are represented as different ages. Like Chris was a boy in Aurora Borealis in a dream. And then he mm-hmm. like transformed into a man. Now we have a uh, boy, Joel and Dr. Joel. Yeah. We have small Joel and then large small, Joel, I guess Joel. as we can call it. <laughs> but there's obviously the, um, you know, you're breaking the fourth wall by having them communicate with each other like that. Mm-hmm. But I love how the camera keeps growing or it keeps shifting into yeah. small Joel's face and it makes him larger and larger while Joel appears more diminutive and smaller or stays the same size actually. I'm glad you pointed that out. That is like so cool because there is a moment when a, uh, you know, in, in, you know, scene coverage, typically as the scene gets more and more climactic, you get closer and closer to your actors. Like, you know, you start in a, in a medium shot and get into a close up. Uh, and the same thing is happening here. Only whenever we uh, are able to, you know, we get closer up on boy, boy Joel, small Joel, and closer on, um, on large Joel. 
Did you call him tall Joel or, or large? Uh, the small, small Joel and large Joel. Large Joel. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but what's great is whenever we jump out into like a wide shot, um, Joel is his normal human size and, uh, small Joel is huge on the screen. He's this giant head, you know, a giant close up, And he's like yelling at, as Mason said, he's like very confrontational. Um, what are some of the things they what, get into? Here? I, what I, what I think is yeah. so, uh, what I noticed about this scene is that you, you get this, um, we, we, we learn that, that we, we really get into Joel's head in this scene and we, mm-hmm. and we realize that he set this arbitrary, like, um, sort of limit like on himself. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. So he's yeah. like, he, they keep bringing this back up. We're pushing 30. We're pushing 30, yeah. you know, like it's multiple times, like 30 is, you know, he, he's got to be married by his, by the time he's 30, essentially. And um, I don't know, mm-hmm. I just thought that was interesting. And also one, one of the things that boy Joel says is, <clears throat> we got to cut this thing out. And Joel, and big Joel says what? And he says, this dependence on external affirmation, fear of rejection, panic thing. Who are you? Who do I look like? Uh, me. I thought we said we weren't going to do this anymore. Do what? This dependence on external affirmation, fear, rejection, panic thing. It's a real turnoff. Intellectually, we're on our game. But emotionally, Joel. We have talked and we have talked and we have talked about this problem. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's great, he, yeah, that's great monologuing in this episode. Yeah, I totally agree with you, Mason. That was probably my most favorite part of the episode when he talks about uh, the dependence on external affirmations. And I think it's up until you hear that line that you start to realize that the beginning of the episode was actually connected to um, this segment because earlier on, whenever we were talking about Joel trying to fix the radiator, Maggie tells him that he can't get acclimated to anything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He can't get acclimated to the cold weather. So mm. now we can see that it's actually a, uh, a mental thing too, because he's not becoming acclimated to himself. I mean, he's like he said, uh, his uh, Tori was saying that he was a juggler. He would always jump ship and go on to other adventures or onto other girlfriends, yada, yada. But he wouldn't actually stay put. And in this sequence, it's showing that he's not trying to become acclimated to himself. And that whenever a failure or a challenge approaches him, he just crumbles in the face of it. Uh, adversity. So I love that small Joel just cuts into him into at a deep core part of him. And I think that is the best part of the episode. Yeah. I, I love that you picked up on that Mason. Yeah. It's yeah. Great. And that, that little kid actor is killing oh, yeah, he it. He does He's a good job. Giving a great mm-hmm. performance. Oh yeah. A uh, neat little trivia fact. Uh, whenever he was talking about Joel not getting accepted into Harvard, yeah. he walked from Zabar's to South 12th street and he said 63 in, in blocks, ring. right? Mm, 63 blocks. And I typed it into Google Maps. And if you walked that distance, it would take you six and a half hours. <laughs> wow. So Joel was walking for, for six, six and a half hours in the rain. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, hey, like the show, the people who wrote this show used those landmarks. You know, they know where that is, you know, on a map, I guess. So they meant it six and a half hours. I think the only thing that I don't like about this sequence Mm -hmm. and I really wish they didn't do it. But at the very end of the exchange between small Joel and big Joel, this clarinet kicks in and we've heard this clarinet before. Yeah. But it, at that moment, I didn't want there to be any music. 
I oh, actually yeah, felt like it, it undermined it. Yeah, I wanted it to be completely silent, but I feel like that actually dampened the scene. To, what, what did I you all respect think? That. It lightens it lightens the mood. So y'all think it elevated the mood? Well, no, Mesa was just saying it kind of gives it a lighter feel. Did you? What did you think? A lighter, a, light, oh, okay, a more lighthearted feel. Yeah. Yeah. Did yeah, you yeah. like? Did you prefer it to kind of go more into the comedy? No, absolutely not. I wanted it to cut into Joel and have that lasting effect onto us as the audience members. So. I, I, I'm not a fan <laughs> of that music. Uh, what about y'all? Did y'all like the I music think, cutting in? I think personally, I just sort of tune it out. Not necessarily tune it out, but I'm. Uh, it's it's such a it didn't hit common you. motif in yeah. the, in the entire series that you just. I, I just, I mean, I hate to say it, but like you'll get used to it. <laughs> even, even in the, yeah. even in those, even in those, um, you know, very dramatic, yeah, heavy scenes like that. Uh, Still You'll got that, that lighthearted, yeah, clarinet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's just part, it's just the tone of the show, I think. Mm, okay. Just speaking about music real fast, uh, I don't know if we'll do this every episode, but uh, we are on season two now, and uh, Mason, Charles, and I were talking about this. According, according to online sources, um, on the second season DVDs, they started subbing out um, the original broadcast music. Some of the songs are replaced with sort of like Muzak or just like different songs on the DVD. So, yeah. And it's actually, it might be more noticeable in certain cases when you can like hear it. It's like, oh, this kind of sounds like Muzak. But originally as broadcast, they're actually like, you know, expensive songs, I guess. But I can just say, um, we're not going to talk about the following songs because they weren't on the DVD. Uh, RB Blues by Ruth Brown, Guitars Cadillacs by Dwight Yoakam, one Foot Dragon by The Coasters, Let's Dance, Benny Goodman, uh, Blue Moon, Billie Holiday. Yeah, there's actually quite a few <laughs> that are not included in this uh, I don't remember hearing Blue Moon in this episode. That's um, that's because uh, it's it's not on the DVD. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay, well, I will say that there. I, I did notice in the scene that we were talking about earlier when Joel wakes up from his dream sequence, The, the Graduate thing, uh, the silent film, um, Chris comes on and, and put plays a song for Joel. And yeah. just throughout that scene, I, I I was trying to listen to the song because it sounded familiar to me, but I couldn't I couldn't put my finger on it. But it was a really good song. I was wondering if you happen to have a list you know, of songs song? which you do. So Let's I don't see. Know. So I will say, um, moosechick.com is a great resource. Uh, every episode is kind of broken down, and that's actually how I figured out about this whole. Um, the music uh, being replaced. Let me see if they have an entry for that. Um, and I, and I, speaking of that scene again, I just while you're looking, um, I, did, I don't know about you guys. Did you did you guys think that it was a little? I don't know. It's it's sort of like they Ed is playing a little too dumb in that scene, you know, because Joel is talking about he never got closure, and Ed is just yeah. like completely oblivious. Like what? What was closure? <laughs> you know, it's like yeah. You yeah, know, Joel's like, like <laughs> Joel's got to spell it out for him. You know? It's like Ed's Ed's really not that not that oblivious. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, Joel's like, um, you know, you're watching a movie, and Ed's like, I am. Say you're watching yeah. a movie. You know, like he yeah he does have to like walk him through it. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I think they had to have him play an idiot just so they can show off that plot line or like that uh, that idea of closure. Yeah, they really need to spell it out for the audience because it's going to come back, um, I guess. Mm -hmm. But it also, 
it comes up again later whenever they're at the bar and uh, yeah. Ed's having to explain it to Holling and Maggie. Even Holling's like, closure? What's well, closure? And I'm like, oh, how have wait. you guys not heard of this? Let's jump there. <laughs> I just wanted to quickly say I was unable to find um, the name of that song uh, according to Moose Chick. So it could be one of the songs that was subbed out um, for like a cheaper version because, uh, you know, I, I hadn't heard that song either. But it does, it doesn't sound like Muzak. It sounds like. No, no, no. It's definitely, recording. it's definitely an old jazz standard. I just couldn't place it. Um, okay. It was a great tune, yeah. though. Oh, real quickly, I actually contacted you about this, Mason. Uh, another song in this episode. That right. I'm certain is like, it samples. Did, were you able to. So let me just introduce it real fast. So there's the. Um, there's a scene where, you know, as you know, Shelly is addicted to TV. Um, she's stayed up late at night and uh, one of her favorite music videos comes on and she gets up and starts dancing as it's playing. The song is um, It's Just a Girl Thing mm-hmm. by, by ICJ. Um, now, this song isn't super duper popular. There's not a lot about it on the internet, but there is like right as it breaks into the chorus, there's sort of this melody that I think is played on like a keyboard or something, but it sounds like it's not necessarily a sample of another song, but it sounds like it's a melody from like a bass line. Well, Did you, and I contacted Mason cause I was like, Mason, do you recognize this? Mason is a, a bass guitar player and as you know, a musician all around, but, I, but were you able to as I, as I, well, I noticed it obviously watching the episode and, um, it did, mm-hmm. it did get my wheels spinning a little bit more today. I was like, man, this, this really does sound like something. Sounds and familiar. I agree with you. I don't think it's a direct sample of, of anything, but I think it's, I think it's like a, just a, a groove that, that was in some mm-hmm. really famous, really popular song, um, that I, I don't know, I think was sort of repurposed or something. Yeah. I, uh, whenever that scene came up, I did pause, uh, the episode and I actually didn't start playing it again until the next day. Cause I was searching and asking everyone, like I recorded my voice <laughs> and sent it to some people. I texted Mason about it. No one really knew it. Um, I even went to the subreddit who sampled, uh, which is the subreddit where people will, um, post a song and ask, you know, what song, it's sampling. Mm-hmm. Um, I will go ahead and say I'm calling them out. It's not a very populated subreddit, um, <laughs> and there's yeah, there's no hope for that for my inquiry. My inquiry there. Have you tried a tip of my tongue subreddit? I'll try that. Yeah, I, I, you know, I feel like who sampled is probably more specific, but tip of my tongue probably would have a lot more um, of a community, right? Yeah, it's got a pretty good number of people in it. I think they might be able to help you out on that. If anyone listening wants to try to find the sample, you can probably, I mean, if the link hasn't been removed, if you look up ICJ, it's just a girl thing on YouTube at um, about a minute and 50 seconds, the chorus breaks out. And that's when the, uh, that's when the groove happens. So if you hear it, if you figure it out, write into um, Northern Overexposure Podcast at gmail.com. We'll just leave it at that, I guess. Uh, <laughs> oh, I, so I did cut you off for a second, Charles, because we were about to start talking about the scene where Ed has to explain the closure closure um, idea to Holling and, and Maggie. And uh, Oh, yeah, no, no, it's okay. Actually, I don't know what it was, but for some reason that scene when watching it was one of the most exhilarating scenes because it's sort of like 
it feels like Ed has a mission. Like he's got this idea. Yeah. I love it. And it's almost like sort of like the break into act three, like in, in this episode. I just love it. I find it, it, you know, Ed is, it's just so endearing how much he cares about Joel. You know, he's, he's so worried about yeah. Joel. He really wants him to come around and he, you know, he devises this whole, you know, plan with Maggie and Holling. I just, I really, I love that scene as well. I'm with you on that. Yeah, it seems like Ed is the only one that is actually uh, concerned about Joel and this breakup to a deeper level. And also, this is the first time I've ever heard him mention about this, but Ed says that if we had not shanghaied him, I don't think that this situation <laughs> would have happened. And it never occurred to me that, they, yeah, what they kind of did was like kidnap, kidnap him. <laughs> That's a sort. That's what he's been um, saying all like the first, like at least the first half of the first season. He was like trying to escape. <laughs> yeah, and it just the kid. I, I, I know that Joel was trying to escape, but it never occurred to me that the other townsfolk would uh, have guilt over making Joel come here. It's a compelling argument. You're right. Like maybe he does feel guilt. It is a compelling argument that uh, Joel is only helping them. Like that's his job is to make sure they live healthy lives. And the toll that that is taking on his life, you know, he's having a hard time adjusting to this small town. Uh, not only that, his fiance broke off the engagement. And, you know, it's hard to say that it's because he's serving in Alaska, but, you know, that's definitely could be a factor, right? So they definitely have that guilt. Yeah. I mean, of course, is uh you know, two sides of every coin, because you could also argue and say, well, the relationship was secretly doomed from the beginning because as we see later on in the episode, yeah, we find whenever they have their makeshift convention, yeah. Joel wasn't ever, I mean, is it too brash of me to say this? Was was he ever just not truly in love with Elaine? Well, like, he does. Would you guys say that? I don't know about that. He does say, um, he does admit later in the episode, um, he was never sexually attracted. Yeah, him. there was something um, missing, but but he did love her. You know, they were they were committed yeah, to each other. Yeah, they were together for like twelve mm-hmm. years. Yeah, but you don't think that translates into something uh, of like a deeper love of something like that, or do you think it was actually? I see what you're It really at, was though. just like a you're saying physical like thing. you're saying because that um, missing element. Maybe it's not like pure love in the sense of this narrative, right? Yeah, and, yeah, you know, exactly. Like, you know, we should feel sad for Joel, but you know, he's. You know, I guess the show is, you know, if you haven't caught on, there's sort of like a sexual tension, sort of like a romance between Joel and Maggie that has yeah. been being fostered. We'll get to uh, some more of that later that, that kind of comes to a head in the later latter part of this episode. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Should we hop into, uh, let's just go into that last that thread. Scene. Yeah, go yeah to the act end. three. Let's get <laughs> yeah. into it. So it begins with, uh, again, as you said, Mason, like Ed obviously really cares for, uh, Joel, it, it sort of all comes to a head when uh, Ed comes to Joel's office. Joel seems to be doing a little better. He's like reading some magazines and Ed says that Joel has to join him at the brick. Um, it's for closure. And Joel doesn't take, like doesn't, doesn't want to do it. And Ed uh, exclaims, he's like, all right, well, um, I'll just wait. I'll sit here and wait. When you're ready, we'll go. And there's, I just wanted to talk about this um, before we get into it, because what Ed does in the scene, as I said, he just sits down. Um, it's incredible. He's motionless. He's actually not even really doing anything, but it almost looks like he's crying. Like he's just kind of looking at Joel and you really feel like, you know, what Ed has in, in mind and you really feel that strong 
sensitivity and that emotion that he feels towards Joel. It really, it's a great, it's a great performance, I think, even though there's nothing going on, you know? <laughs> Subtle. And so Ed takes Joel and kind of, he kind of, uh, kind of lays the scene out for Joel. Picture this, Dr. Fleischman. There you are, sitting in your cafe on Park Avenue in Times Square, subway rumbling beneath your feet, mist drifting in on the Veranzano Street Bridge. A yellow checkered cab goes past. Whoosh! Splashes a guy selling pretzels on the corner. He flips him the bird, curses his unborn children. As the sun slowly sinks behind the Statue of Liberty. Yeah, so Ed kind of like is trying to establish uh, this moment for Joel, like set the scene for it. And uh, it's because Joel, earlier in the episode, when he's bedridden and incredibly depressed, sort of talks about his most um, fondest memories of Elaine. And Ed's trying to rebuild this scene that Joel told him uh, so that Joel can have closure. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Well, I think it's really interesting that he, he starts, or like the way that he wants to recreate it, is using Joel's happiest moment with Elaine rather than trying to recreate the moment in which they would have theoretically broken up with. So it's kind of like... Well, uh, the thing is, I guess there was no breakup moment because it was done through a letter. There was no closure. Yeah. So, it, But yeah, there, you're right. What moment does Ed choose to find Yeah, I thought that uh, Ed would have created the moment in which they would have like met head-to-head in New York and had a confrontation. So I was surprised that he decided to recreate the happiest moment and i i think it was just because i think it's by virtue of the fact that that was really the only moment that he had that with the you know those fresh like in his mind memory. because because didn't yeah. joel tell ed about that uh, one night where she was wearing that particular dress and you know mm-hmm. yeah and i think and i think some straps. of it yeah and i think some of it also comes from ed's love of the Woody Allen films and he, you know, he like, he's, he's like a director, you know, you get this sense that he's like imagining the scene in New York. He's got, he's got it in his imagination. It's there, you know, it's easy for him to call upon it. And yeah. It's a clear image. For yeah. Oh, that's really good. I, I didn't think about that, Mason. Um, because he has such, he has such a director's mindset. Mm-hmm. He's able to envision the scene of how he wants to go have a go about. So that's why he's uh, moving all the set pieces and everything. I I didn't put that together. It's like orchestrating it. Yeah. Yeah, He's orchestrating Mm it. (laughs) I wanted to um, comment that in this uh, description that Ed gives to this, the scene dressing, uh, he mentions that uh, like a cabbie gives someone the finger or something like that. It's like someone gives him the bird. Uh, Ed is wearing mittens but he does, he still does the gesture of the middle (laughs) finger. I think it's a really (laughs) sly way of, um, you know, flicking the bird on, you know, primetime TV without, you know, any sensors because he's got the mitt on. You can't really see, uh, can't really see his fingers, but he's doing it. Um, <laughs> on that note, there, you know, I just, I, I don't know. I, I just felt like it was um, Joel. It's really just Joel in particular. He just, he looks so, I don't know what the word for it is, but just um, bumbling and like just, comical in that huge jacket i mean all of their winter attire is just is so large gigantic i've never it's like i can't imagine wearing a coat that that thing you could fit a family of four in that you could fit like three small children inside there (laughs) that is a good point to bring up because we haven't really seen winter wear of this caliber in the show so far because it's serious you said 
Yeah, this is now we're in winter. So yeah, the scene is uh, Joel is seated underneath like a little umbrella table outside the brick and um, Hollings serves uh, some... Uh, Iced coffee like with whipped cream. Sort of it's drink, iced coffee. Iced coffee <laughs> from uh, from uh, Joel's memory. And Maggie comes out wearing the spaghetti strap dress, even though it's like 20 below outside, I think Joel says. But she, uh, Maggie, is playing the character of Elaine, and she looks to Joel and is essentially like, all right, now, this is your closure. Tell me what you need to get off your chest. Yeah, and then Joel, this is where Joel talks about, you know, not always being like completely satisfied with Elaine. Mm -hmm. So that was the thing that he wanted to talk about or like he would talk about with her. You know, of course, when he talks about that scene, uh, Maggie starts blushing a little bit. She starts getting a little heated up. Yeah, he has some line about like a monologue about uh, sex should be like stealing life out of the jaws of death. Stealing life out of the jaws of death. Yeah, I love that. Some great writing in this scene. Yeah. Which is really funny because he's a doctor. That's what he's supposed to be doing. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. That's why he gets really turned on by oh god <laughs> yeah maggie maggie has to excuse herself she you know yeah she gets worked up with i actually <laughs> love it's kind of almost like a weird bit of scene direction because um there's nowhere to go from there maggie's just like wow and she does excuse herself as you said but she literally just walks away maybe she's four a, or five paces yeah she's like spellbound she has to like take a step back and take a breath and come back to it what I love is yeah. that um, I, it was it was subtle, but um, you know Joel he, when he first starts talking about it, he, he's reluctant at first, and um, you know he thinks it's it's just laughable that he's supposed to open up to Maggie. You know, like he's mm-hmm. like, "What to you? Like, really? Yeah." You know? And then uh, mm-hmm. and then a little bit later, he starts kind of he reluctantly, begrudgingly <laughs> gets into it, and he says. Uh, you don't want to hear this. And then there, there's just something about yeah. the way Maggie says, yes, I do. And she's like, she's just very excited. <laughs> she says, I mean, for closure. <laughs> yeah, no, she's great. Yeah. Th- these guys are, these guys are top tier actors. Uh, what's also funny about this conversation is when they start talking about sex, you start getting a little wider and you see more and more extras. There's a lot more extras in this season. Uh, but yeah, as they're talking about this very intimate subject, there's just a lot of townsfolk walking like literally two feet away from them, like <laughs> um, <laughs> hearing everything they're talking about. But you know, what's great, this is such an amazing scene, at least for me. Uh, what I love about this scene is, you know, it's sort of uh, the formula for this, setting this up is we've got the problem and we have the solution and here's like sort of the plan in action. And in the end, you know, as is common in this show, it's like in the end, it's not like a climactic uh, catharsis or release. It, you know, Joel's problem isn't solved, but, but what we do come out with at the end of the scene is you just see Joel has amazing friends. Like, you know, we always have sort of this romantic, um, uh, this romantic feeling between Joel and Maggie. And there's a little bit of that here whenever she gets a little, uh, mm-hmm. you know, worked up by what Joel is saying. But ultimately at the end of the, ep- at the end of this scene, they're just really good friends. They're like, can I buy you a beer? You know, let's just hang out. And you see that Holling and Ed, you know, they've also been planning this for a while. And I don't know. I just love it. I just yeah. Love- yeah. There's a lot of camaraderie between all the townsfolks. He doesn't get closure, but 
as he says, he feels better, you know, and his friends yeah. cheered him up a little bit. And yeah, it feels better than, than the closure, you know, a quick note, you were talking about uh, earlier, Charles, like sort of mm-hmm. Joel not being able to acclimate with himself. Um, but I do think he is acclimating with Sicily uh, better and better each episode. For instance, you know, we're just saying like, he's got, he's got friends now. Um, everyone, is kind, you know, but, uh, there is a, this is something I, I, uh, I, I, I did a little bit of research on cause I'd never heard of the title, but, um, whenever Joel is trying to, um, I guess you would say, uh, hit it off with one of Chris's seven sister friends, you know, the, mm-hmm. at the bar when they're doing this double date, um, Joel references coming of age in Samoa, which I guess is a work. It's a, it's a book of research about, I guess, essentially, studying uh, adolescent girls, uh, studying youth, essentially. But Joel um, brings it up because he says the researcher writing the book sort of dives headfirst into the culture. You know, she's not looking at it from the outside. She, what does he say? Like puts on the skirt and dances with them or something. Ah. And I feel like there's a couple other, there's maybe one or two more instances of this, but, you know, these are little hints of Joel, Joel admires that in uh, the author, mm. Margaret Mead, he says. Um, but yeah, so it's like something we can see that Joel, um, at least, you know, from the first episode, he's trying to flee from Sicily. And by this episode, he can, he kind of understands like how to acclimate. Yeah. Well, isn't that, uh, that's really funny that you bring that up because the very next thing that happens in that scene is that that girl rejects him because yeah. he's not like the town. Like in her mind, he doesn't seem like he's a part of the town. It seems like anything that she would have got back in the Northeast corridor of the United States. Oh, she so, says, well, well, she was saying, I think her reason for rejection was that, you know, he's similar to any guy back uh, in the Northeast corridor, but uh, except for the fact that this would just be like, a, she's not looking for like a weekend fling, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think that's uh, such a, I guess a, a strange coincidence that you bring that up and it happened within that same scene. But that def- it definitely uh, reinforces the idea that uh, Joel has sort of been kidnapped here. Like, you know, there's no suitable mate for him. You know, that, that seems to come up a lot. Uh, it, doesn't Ed say that? He says like uh, early on in the episode, Joel says, like, well, what about the women that I need to meet? And then Ed says, what women? Yeah, and it, yeah, I think exactly. it, and the scene cuts right there. Yeah. Well, as a whole, what do you, uh, what do you think of the episode as the opener for season two? How do, how do you guys feel about it? I think it's pretty strong. Um, yeah. Oh, well, let's hear from, uh, what do you think, Mason? You're, you've kind of jumping, you're jumping into this, um, kind of fresh off, right? Yeah. After, yeah. But after having not watched for a while, I would say it is very strong coming back and just, just to, just to get re-immersed in this, in this world here. And, um, you know, know, reintroduction to all the characters with the exception of Maurice. I mean, he doesn't have a very big role here. We only see him in like one scene, but I think it's great. Yeah. I think it's, uh, and Ruth Ann too, like she's, I mean, we don't see her at all historically not represented in the first season very much either. So yeah, no, Charles, yeah. To answer your question, uh, I think it's pretty strong. I mean, um, like kind of like what you said earlier in the, in the episode, it's the same old friends, but sort of in a new scenario, it's winter, new developments kind of change the course of things. I guess the first season, I don't know. 
what would you say, Charles? Because we we've talked about this, like the message of the first season. What would you say, like sort of like if you have to start with this episode, where do you think this season will go? Can you predict that even now or no? I'm tr- I can definitely predict, but I, will <laughs> I be right? Probably not. But I think that they started off really strong by having Elaine break up with him. And mm-hmm. I think that that's supposed to be the curveball, And that's what's going to be setting up the rest of the season. Cause that's introducing the concept that Joel is now going to be more open to relationships and especially right. with his relationship with Maggie. Cause that was previously something that he felt guilty or he felt like that was something that was blockading him. But now that's out of the way. Yeah. Uh, I also I guess- feel that, Oh, go on. I'm sorry. I was just saying, I guess from like a writer's perspective, uh, if we need to get Joel to, to like really integrate into Sicilian life, you know, we have to cut off ties from, from everything else that's, that he's trying to get to like, you know, Elaine symbolizes New York. So they're trying to yeah. distance him further from that so that he can embed and assimilate a little better mm-hmm. into yeah, Sicily. Yeah. It- Exactly. And it's not only just a separation between New York and Sicily, but it's also a a separation within Joel inside. Because I think that pivotal scene of him being in the movie theater, it's demonstrating that Joel is trying to have character development now. Like this is the season where something is going to happen within Joel. Uh, Otherwise, Mm. he'll just he's just going to crumble. He's just going to have his nervous breakdown, just like when he didn't get into Harvard. It's going to be just like that. So this is do or die now. I think that's very important to set up with the quote unquote pilot episode. Yeah. Right. Um, the season two pilot to demonstrate that this is the season where something dramatic is going to happen within Joel. He's, you know, not only uh, cheesy, but he's not only trying to escape Sicily, but he's trying to escape within his himself. Yeah. No, that's it's, great. He needs to, you know, uh, you know the, say goodbye to all that. You know, we're not only saying goodbye to his ties to New York, but, you know, saying goodbye to the old, the old paradigm that he used to cope with difficulties in his life. So we've, he's got to, he's got to, you know, start from square one and come up with a new approach. Yeah. I especially, you know, think that there's, there's the... The final scene with Maggie is, um, I think, is a is an important one in, in the in the first episode of this season. That which that will know, grow in this season. Mm. There's some. There's um, just some really subtle, you know, little kernels of of things. That's just some. Yeah, like like you were saying, Lee. This just brilliantly acted that scene and between the two of them, they're they're saying a lot more than what they're saying. Yeah, they definitely, you could tell the actors appreciated that scene, like what they were given on paper. Mm-hmm. And I hope it, it seems like they spent, you know, they spent energy and time on on uh, on the choices that went into like each, not only each line, but each expression. Right. I totally forgot um, what you brought up, Mason, when Maggie's like, oh yeah, I, I want to know, I want to know, you know, like I, yeah. I love that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That is a great, that is a great little beat. Um, so uh, I think we should take this moment. Should we, should we, is there anything that we kind of missed uh, talking about? We didn't kind of reach the end. We didn't talk about Shelley's confession, which I, I really like. Yeah. That scene. Oh, it is a right. great scene. Yeah. yeah. Do you want to lead us there, uh, Mason? So Shelley finally realizes that, uh, that something is wrong here. <laughs> Um, what was the, (laughs) what was the breaking point? I can't remember. Um, was the impetus for her finally, uh, taking some action on the issue? I think she spends their 
She spends their like non spe- oh, right, honeymoon right. fund. Oh right, right. They're yeah, their non honeymoon fund. Oh yeah, and that scene was great too. She's she's doing like the old you know the old call in, um, you know she's she's ordering tele- tele- television shopping. Yeah, right. Exactly, and just ordering absolutely ridiculous things. What was it? Yeah, koala, like the pets, talking koala uh, bear that yeah, koala tiara, bear clock or something. Hot dog. That's a phone or a phone. That's a hot dog. Definitely got to have and a uh, hauling. Pet. Yeah, it kind of you know, starts this rift between her and Holling, understandably. Um, I mean, I think practically almost every scene with Shelley and Holling in it, in this episode, they're, they're, they're not happy with each other. Yeah. And then it leads to the culmination of Holling telling Shelley, saying like, I bet you can't last five minutes without television. And Mm -hmm. that's when she realizes that she has a problem. And then she starts spouting off the like TV, TV guy, schedule. right? Yeah. yeah, the TV that guy. That is such yeah. a cool scene. That's really cool because um, yeah, she just starts delving. Cool. She starts uh, just in twisting into languages. languages yeah. That she was... Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so she's trying... Yeah, she's, listening to. She's, she's trying to... break almost. Yeah. With a, by Holling's like request, he's like, I bet you can't stay like five minutes without watching TV. They cut off the TV and she tries to do something else and it's not working. She runs back to the TV, turns it on, and then sort of robotically um, walks in a straight line with like a fixed gaze and is just rattling off 10 o'clock, this. The litany eight of, o'clock, this, yeah. of yeah, shows. What I love yeah, about... That's probably such a fun scene. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Go on. No, I was just going to say, just to back up a little bit, what I love about all of their interactions throughout the episode, I just love Holling's character and how just supportive and loving he is throughout all of this, despite the fact that Shelley yeah. is really leaving He's him a in a bind. <laughs> yes, exactly. You know, and like there's one scene that illustrates this really, really well where she comes down. And uh, she's dressed, you were mentioned it earlier, she's dressed in, uh, you know, as if she's the, what was the woman's Vanna name? White. Uh, yes, exactly. And, um, and uh, you know, the brick is slammed. I mean, there's, every table's full. 16 there's people, burgers, I think yeah. you said. And, uh, and she says something, I don't know, I can't remember what, what it was exactly that prompted him. And he says, well, you know, the, uh, whichever tap is getting kind of low. Or she, she says, what, it's, uh, it's almost 7.30. What happens at 7.30 or whatever? Uh, and he's like, I could, I could use, you know, I could use a little help. <laughs> That's it. That's yeah. the extent of his admonition, <laughs> you know? Yeah, he's... Yeah, yeah, very patient man. Uh, and this this whole plot line does culminate, as we said, into the confession scene where, um, you know, Shelley has been raised Catholic. She has learned or has been raised to know that, you know, if you need uh, some, if you have a problem, you know, the answer is spiritual perhaps. So she goes to what she says is uh, the closest thing to God that Sicily has, and that's Chris. Yeah. Yeah. Chris Stevens. Um, so they're in K-Bear and he agrees to hear her confession, though he's, uh, I guess he's more suited to and you could more see, Eastern religions. or Right. Yeah. And you could just see the amusement on uh, on Chris's face when she yeah. says that he's the closest thing to God that Cicely has. You know, he knows his past. Yeah. You know, you, he knows all the, yeah. you know, the uh, all of his transgressions. And he's like, oh, what? Okay, if I'm the closest thing, yeah. you know. <laughs> anyway, but um, I'm the closest thing to God this town has to offer. <laughs> yeah, this town has a problem. God yeah. this town, <laughs> right? Uh, I love the confessional booth. It's just they're in the closet, and we can see uh, 
On the left side is Chris. On the right side is Shelly. In the middle is uh, what appears to be sort of a clear see-through rain slicker, like a jacket. And they've pulled up uh, a lamp uh, up close to them at their feet, um, which gives them a nice sort of underlit feeling. Very close, very intimate space. Uh, I like it a lot. It, you know, this scene is played, uh, you know, I think successfully as a joke. You know, they're kind of relating uh, addiction to TV to alcoholism or something like that. But I think in today's climate, it's, you know, you know less of a joke and more of a reality almost, you know, like addiction right, to screens right. is actually not a joke today as it would be, you know, it's, you know, maybe it doesn't have comparing compared to alcoholism. It's quite different, but yeah, that's really, that's really interesting. You bring that up because like you said, they do try to play it up for jokes or play it up for laughs, this entire mm-hmm. scene, but it's, it's almost like it completed the full circle because it started off as a joke and you think that, Oh, they're just talking about television. That's not something you can actually get addicted to. But as the, years go by since this television episode aired, you see that it's starting to become a real problem actually. And it's gone full round the bend where you can see like, oh, this could actually be a real plot line. Just replace television in a drama, you know, like in a, yeah, exactly. uh, I think that's so hilarious. I I love the, uh, the makeshift confession and you you had described it perfectly. And it reminds me of those uh, little forts that you would build as a child. Yeah. (laughs) You would think your couch cushions, your yeah. mom would like yell right. at you and be like, put, put those cushions back up. <laughs> <laughs> it's cool that, you know, they, it's almost a silly request but, uh, for Chris to hear her confession, but, you know, they take it with sincerity and, uh, you know, their determination. So they're going to try to make it as close to a, a true confessional. And, uh, you know, Shelly has to keep reminding him. It's like, you're not supposed to say my name. You're not supposed to know me. Uh, yeah. I don't remember what else. Like you, can she you tells him to, to prescribe some Hail Marys. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't yeah. know any Hail Marys. It's like, I know a <laughs> but couple. But he knows a Buddhist, some kind of Buddhist chant. And she's yeah. just like, that's, well, that's cool too. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I okay. love that button, <laughs> yeah. that, that ending yeah. line. <laughs> we should almost use that as the uh, sound bite. Like, yeah, that's cool. cool. <laughs> <laughs> you have to give me some Hail Marys or something so I can absolve myself. Uh, I, don't, I don't know any Hail Marys. Um... I know a Shoshu Buddhist chant. That's cool. Hey, really quickly, can anyone... Okay, so they have an exchange where she says something about... Um, I just... She's talking about how she gets this yucky feeling and, you know, watching TV is the only thing uh-huh. that makes it better. And she says, do you know what I mean? And Chris says, uh, with TV, I can take it or leave it, except for the zones. Is he is he referring to yeah. what, the Twilight Zone? <laughs> Twilight what is he referring zone. to? It's okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I thought. I think he's got to be. Yeah. Yeah. There's some good, uh, you know, I'm a huge fan of the Twilight Zone, as I'm sure you guys are. Uh, but um, so I'm, I'm flattered to hear Chris is a, is a big fan. Uh, earlier in, the, in this episode, um, Shelly sort of makes fun of Hauling for wanting to watch MacGyver, which, you mm-hmm. know, maybe quality wise is a, is a less important show compared to the twilight zone, but I love MacGyver. So that's when I knew that Shelly had a problem with TV. It was like, <laughs> she didn't understand that MacGyver is, is great TV. Um, wow. But you were saying, um, that yucky feeling, uh, Shelly was saying how, how she gets that yucky feeling. And the only thing that makes it go away is watching more TV. I mean, that's, you know, I'm sure that's kind of been scientifically studied just sort of like, 
anytime we're in a in an uncomfortable position or situation, we like pick up our phone or look at it right. or check our phone. We know, we we all know that feeling. Well, we can all relate to that. Yeah, definitely. What do you uh before we drop off of this poll line really quickly? I just thought of this. What do you think Shelly's escaping from? Like, what do you think is turning her to television? Like, because uh, it yeah, seems like everything is going fine. it a bit. Yeah. I don't know that the writers necessarily had this in mind, but, um, you know, it could be like what I, I don't, I honestly don't think, and I, you know, me and Mason have seen the show. I honestly don't think that Shelly is unhappy with Holling. I think Shelly loves yeah. Holling and he loves yeah. her. And throughout the entire series, I want to say they tend to show that love to each other, you know, but there's always the interesting conflict here or there. Um, maybe it has something to do with, um, you know, cause she was, uh, she thought she was going to have a baby and that turned out to be a, um, what was it? What would they call it? Like a hysterical a psychotic pregnancy? pregnancy. What is the term? For hysterical, it? Uh, hysterical, pregnancy. Pregnancy. hysterical pregnancy. Excuse me. Still, that's a, that's a probably a, not a PC term, you know, right. In any case, but, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but no, yeah, maybe that has some bearing, uh, because in this episode, that's one thing she confesses. She, um, she was on the phone and she said she had to go on hold because the baby was crying. The baby was and crying. in reality, there was no baby. It was just the TV that she wanted to catch this program. I sort of, I oh, was wondering. Right. I, sorry, go ahead, Charles. Oh, no, really quickly. I, I totally forgot about that because that was one of the specific things that she says that she feels guilty about when she's in a confession with Chris because she says, I even lied to say that I had to go, you know, tend to the baby. Yeah. And I, I remember hearing that line and thinking, why was that such an important thing to want to say in the confession? But that makes a lot of sense now that you bring it up. Uh, yeah, but that's all I was going to say. What were you going to say, Mason? Well, I guess I was just wondering when we first started talking about um, Shelley's plot here in this episode. So I guess because it's been some time since I've watched season one, I had the thought that, um, I mean, have we really seen, I guess I was wondering if we had seen any kind of, uh, any of Shelley's character flaws yet. I was wondering if this whole, um, plot line was just there to sort of illustrate, you know, some kind of weakness in, in, in Shelley's character. But I guess you guys mentioned the hysterical pregnancy that I don't know if that's necessarily, that's more of a, I guess could happen to anyone, but I mean, I think mm-hmm. we're just starting starting to get the idea that um, that Shelley k- is a little bit neurotic. You know, she's not. No, that's definitely. De- I think I think that's definitely developing here towards you know entering into this season. I think uh, Charles and me our our read on Shelley in the first season was mostly uh, she's kind of represented as um, it, like like immature, like a kid, um, right? And it's just mostly to contrast her and, and Holling's age. Cause she's typically represented in the first season as, you know, I th- well, she's 18 years old, I think. And Holling as a she really? okay. grandfather yeah. character, you know, yeah. so that's sort of her characterization in the first season. Um, but no, it's interesting to note that she, um, she has had this, uh, as they say, hysterical pregnancy as they call it. Um, and, uh, now she has sort of this, you know, addiction to TV so perhaps there is some neuroticism to come with Shelley. Yeah. You know, I just thought about this uh, and I might catch some flack for this, but <laughs> I think that I do like her having this problem, this neuroticism or this uh, fancy toward escapism because at least it introduces a problem within her that's not tied to men. Yeah. Because in season mm-hmm. one, she was 
a lot of the plot lines that involved Shelley was that she was an object to be obtained by men. And at least in this plot line, she is the problems that she's experiencing are human problems and not like relationship problems. Relationship problems. With exactly. Men. Yeah. I'm sorry, I, think, you, I, I cut you off. What were you no, gonna say? I was just saying, uh, I think uh yeah, our 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 conversations about Shelley in season one were always uh you know accompanied by the Bechtel test. We kept talking about that <laughs> in season one. What because, was this? Uh the Bechtel test, do you wanna Go into a Charles? Oh, yeah. So the Bechtel test was started by Alison Bechtel. Uh, you might know her from Fun Home, the uh, graphic novel and or musical. And basically the Bechtel test was just something that she had thought of where in movies or televisions or really anything, any medium, whenever you see two female characters on screen, if they can be on screen together and not talk about men or relationships, mm. then they will pass the Bechtel test. But if they talk about men or relationships of any, any kind, then it'll fail it. And many movies have failed the Bechtel failed. test. Now, that's <laughs> not to say you have to pass the Bechtel test to have strong, well-written female characters. Plenty of movies have uh, uh, great female characters that have failed the Bechtel test. But It's just an interesting you know, uh, Yeah, metric. such an it's interesting just, metric. Yeah. Exactly. Well, well, just really quickly, Shelly, I did want to have one other note on Shelly, mm-hmm. um, that the scene where Holling finally confronts her about her, um, about her problem and her spending, um, she totally just like, um, deflects it and, and, and shifts the blame back onto him. And she accuses him of, of being stingy, uh, we, when he mm, complained about yeah. spending four thousand dollars, yeah, and uh, <laughs> and you know, sort of accusing him of being a philistine because he because he doesn't want to sit and and explore the world via the television with yeah. her, and that that sort of you know shows her her immaturity, I guess, a little bit more re- reinforces that. Yeah, and she's almost like you know been brainwashed, like sort of like a cult. Uh, like convert, like converted to this cult of TV. So yeah, she's got this whole sort of like message in her head uh, of what's, you know. Yeah. No zealot like a convert. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, I think that wraps it up for, you know, goodbye to all that. I don't think we've mentioned the title, but we didn't really mention it up at front, but this episode is called goodbye to all that. Um, Thanks again, Mason, for joining us. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Yeah. It's been, yeah. Thanks Mason. It's been great. I hope to, uh, participate more in the future yeah we would love to have you back on the show um you know season two is it's it's season two is new you know we're gonna (laughs) we're gonna try new things you know maybe we'll have some more guest hosts on uh try to spin things around a little but yeah i guess uh until next week this has been lee charles thanks for continuing to watch with me yeah thanks for having us man thanks lee and um the next episode we'll be getting into is uh Season two, episode two, it's called The Big Kiss. I'll see you then. All right. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme song was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Mason for being our guest host on the podcast today. If you'd like to write into the podcast, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com. And of course, thank you for listening.